Well, today we turn a corner. <clears throat> we turn the main corner in the book of Genesis, and actually in the Pentateuch and the whole story of the Bible. Up until now, Genesis 1 to 11 has been kind of the grand cosmic introduction to who God is and what our problem is. <laughs> and now we start this journey of God's main rescue plan with the call of Abraham. Now, if you look back over the last, uh, the last uh, few chapters, you'll see that after the flood, after the Noah story, we have a bunch of genealogies, and those are boring and we usually skip them, right? <laughs> we just go, list of names, move on to the next thing. Why is this important? We had all of these nations talked about and all these language groups and they were spread out all, over all the earth. And one of the genealogies you had in there, these are the descendants of, Shem, of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we got the sons of Japheth, the sons of Ham, and then also the sons of Shem. And then we got this Tower of Babel story. And then the author goes back and says, now these are the descendants of Shem again. Now we're focusing not so much on a global thing, we're narrowing the playing field a lot. If you look at this genealogy that comes in chapter 11 and verses uh, 10 to 26, what you see is quite different from the chapter 10 genealogies. You have this guy was the father of this one person, oh, and he had many other sons and daughters, but that's not important, and that person was the father of this one person, and he had other sons and daughters, but that's not important. It's this one person that's important. And we're following the thread very deliberately to a man named Terah. These are the generations of Terah who fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Suddenly, you have three names instead of one name. And the author's wanting us to zero in on this. So verse 26 and 27 of Genesis chapter 11, repeat, right? It's almost exactly the same thing twice. So the author wants us to go, oh, okay, now we're in a different world here. We're, we're narrowing down on this one guy and his family. And uh, I was thinking maybe this week I need, to, I need to do a short video to kind of unpack the Toledot formula these are the generations. There's 10 of them. This is how the book of Genesis is actually organized. It's not by chapters and verses. It's by the these are the generations segmentations. And usually it's, so these are the generations of Terah, and then we get the story of Abraham. And these are the generations of Abram, but we get the story of Isaac. And then these are the, you know, generations of Isaac, but it's really the story of Jacob which is actually the story of Joseph more than anything else. Uh, it's always the father that is named, and then it's the story through the son. So we have here Terah. And this changes everything. We narrow down to this one family. And so we're going to read a couple passages now, and these, this will form the backbone of our, our study today. So... Let's stand together as we read from God's word. Genesis chapter 11, verse 27 to 12, 4. 
Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldees, Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, son of Abram's wife, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, Haran and Haran, is it a place or a person? This is where English is bad. It's Haran and Haran. Two different H's, but we only have one, so it's confusing for us. I can't remember which is which. But one's different. It's not the same word. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And we're going to jump over to chapter 15 and verses 1 to 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. But Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and the member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Have a seat. So the story of Abram, we've gone through the cosmic story, now we're narrowing it down. And as we look at this story, three main things we're going to look at today is that God is calling a people to himself, but he calls an unlikely people. He calls imperfect people, uh, but he promises to build a new people through unlikely and imperfect people. So the first thing we're going to look at today is God chooses to work through unlikely people. So God is calling Abram to himself, and he says, I'm going to make a great nation of you, but there's a problem right off the bat. You, you, it's, it's repeated a few times, isn't it? His wife, Sarai, is barren. She bore him no children. It's like 
He didn't just have to say it once. He had to say it two different times, two different ways, so that we understood that this is a major problem. Because God's going to tell him, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Lots of people, descendants that you can't even count. But that's really hard when you're 75 years old and you don't have any kids. It's hard to believe. There's no mention of the character of Abram at all, is there? Remember, God chose Noah? Why did God choose Noah? Here's a righteous man. He's, he's like, he's uh, seeking after God's heart. He is, he's great. He's the only one. <laughs> What's good about Abram? No idea. No mention of Abram's character. Very much a contrast. Ur of the Chaldeans. Archaeology tells us Ur, uh, southern, uh, probably southern Iraq, close to the Persian Gulf, um, probably where this originally was. The Chaldeans, this is kind of an anachronistic thing that later editors or, or maybe the uh, later authors of Genesis put in so that, that people in the much later time that were reading this understood where it was. Chaldeans don't come onto the world scene until about 1000 B.C., uh, so during the reign of like David and Solomon maybe, or later than that, uh, Chaldeans don't uh, uh, appear in, in, in anything before that. Um, but this is just kind of to tell the reader, again, there's kind of a difference between the event of a text and the actual text itself when it's written down, but this is to give them a, a geographic location but we know from archaeology that this was a major center of moon god worship. So Abram comes out, his, even his wife and, and these other people, their names are very much connected with this moon god pagan worship that happened in Ur. And so you've got a pagan moon god worshiper uh, from Ur, uh, close to Babylon. So people that were obviously separated during the Babylon situation that we did last week. Unlikely people. Pagan moon worshippers who were super old and childless, called to be the father of many nations and bring blessing to the world through Yahweh God, the creator. There's also no mention of Abram's awareness or pursuit of God. There's no end. Abram started calling on the name of Yahweh, like we got earlier in Genesis 4. So what's happening here? God is on the move, and he is pursuing a relationship with Abram before Abram even is interested. God starts it, and God uses Abram and the situation for his glory and for his good so that there is no question that this is God's act. 1 Corinthians chapter 26, for consider, uh, 1 verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So God chooses unlikely people because it's through the unlikely people that his reality can shine forth. It's not the wise, it's not the learned, it's not the smart, it's not the best, it's not the, the, the top of the heap that, that God uses. God uses the unlikely people and he starts the relationships so that it all comes back to it's God at work. God starts the relationship. Remember in uh, John chapter 6, very long chapter uh, in John's gospel, but Jesus says this one thing in verse 65. He says, no one can come to the Father. No one can come to me unless the Father first draws him. No mention of Abram's character. He's coming from a pagan uh, background, worshiping the moon. God's calling him to be a nation when his wife is barren. And there's absolutely no mention of Abraham's awareness or pursuit of God. God takes the initiative to work with an unlikely person. And over the course of the next number of chapters, we see Abraham's faith tested, grown, um, challenged, developed because God chooses to work through unlikely people. Well, second thing, back in chapter 12, uh, 1 to 3, we see that God promises a new people to Abram, or Abraham. Abram, well, he gets his name changed about uh, chapter 17. But he says, go from your country. Now, this is really quite soft in kind of English, go. Lech lecha, get going by yourself, is, is kind of the, 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 the real kind of emphatic, deeply cultural, problematic command of God. Because you never go it alone in ancient culture. You always stick with your family no matter what. And what's the first thing God says? Look at the, it's kind of a funnel. Go from your country... So, leave Canada. From your kindred, from the people you hang out with on a regular basis and are related to you very broadly, and from your father's house. Wow. Now, Abram's listed first, so the assumption is that he's probably the oldest. That means he's in charge of the rest of the family for their good and their well-being, and God is saying, leave it. This, this is probably the biggest hurdle he has to overcome because his responsibility is to this family. But God says, you have to leave it. And the place you're staying, and I'm going to take you to a new land, I'm going to make a new nation, I'm going to make your name great, and all of this is contrary to what humanity was wanting 
at the Tower of Babel. Right? These two stories are actually side by side because the author wants us to see the difference. What did the people of Babel want? We want to settle down in one place so that we're not separated, we're not scattered, and we want a great name for ourselves. What does God say? Leave it all. Go to, you don't know where you're even going yet. I wonder how that went over at the dinner table. Hey, Sarah, yeah, we're, we're moving. Sure, where to? Not a clue. Just pack up the U-Haul, we'll start driving. That's all I got. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about your wives, guys, but I'm pretty sure mine would be a nope. <laughs> like, oh, here we go again. You know, they've been in, in uh, they've probably been in Haran for a number of years. We don't know really how many. Um, but they've been settled. But again, there's this, the, this contrast with Babel that sought security, that sought stability, that sought, let's not divide the family. Let's make sure we stick together and not be scattered. And here's God telling Abram, that's exactly what I want you to do. But I will bring you to a new land, to the land I will show you. And it's pretty vague, right? I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. It's God who is going to make his reputation, his, uh, his name something, so that you will be a blessing. And this is a difficult one to translate because it's actually an imperative so that you must be a blessing. And I'm going to bless you, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you or by you or in your name somehow. It's, again, it's, it's really hard to translate, but it's like this whole thing is that God is saying, I'm starting with you, and we're going to do something very different, but it's going to impact the entire world. You know, all those nations in chapter 10... The, the, the division and the multitude of languages that come out of the Tower of Babel, through you, Abraham, I am going to work so that all of those can be blessed. And, and again, we kind of hide it in most of our translations, but it's through your seed, and it's this seed that has started in Genesis chapter 3, through your seed, Eve, the head of the serpent will be crushed and the seed comes back over and over again and we'll see it in chapter 15 again. But God promises a new people who will bring blessing to all. But in order for that new people and that new family to take root, you have to leave the family you have for the family I will give you. And this is the same as the call of Jesus. Mark chapter 3, 31 to 35. We went through the gospel of Mark a couple years ago. Um, but if you remember this scene, Jesus is at a house and it's packed and there's, there's no way they can get in. And, you know, Jesus is like, they're like, ah, he's not eating, he's not sleeping well. His family comes to take charge of him because they think he's nuts. He's lost his mind. And somebody says, hey, Jesus, your mom and... Brothers and sisters are here wanting to see you. And Jesus is like, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Who's my family? 
points to his disciples and says, here they are. Those who do the will of God are my mother, brother, sister. This is my family. It's not biological. It's about the family that's following God together. That God knits together for his purposes to bring blessing to all. Ephesians chapter 1, 5 and 6. God has, from, from the beginning, from the foundation of creation, from before that, he has purpose to adopt you into his family and to show his glory and his grace to people through that. Just take a look at that. This is an amazing passage. Ephesians chapter 1. I love this chapter because it's only two sentences in Greek. It's this amazing run-on sentence that, that Paul loves to do. Starting in verse 3, Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan from the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Again, it's, I mean, even this very literal ESV translation breaks it into some sentences, but it's one thought. This amazing move of God to include us in his family. God promises a new people through Abram. Jesus calls a new family to himself in the apostles. And Paul in Ephesians argues that all of the nations, regardless of nationality or race or language are brought together as one people for his glory. And it's unlikely people that he calls together, isn't it? God chooses to work through unlikely people. He promises a new family to us as followers of Jesus. He promises a new people through Abram to bless the nations. But remember, too, that God chooses imperfect people. In chapter 15, this is the first time Abram takes part in the conversation. Before this, we just, you know, God said this, and Abraham went and did it. Uh, you know, verse 4. So Abram packed up everybody and left. And then God speaks again, and Abram just goes and does stuff. In chapter 15, Abram starts pushing back. You know, it's interesting. The leaders that God really uses are the guys that, you know, ask questions. And maybe you're a little hesitant about this. You know, God uses a Peter who's always, you know, ah, Jesus, I'm not sure this is the best idea. I'm pretty sure we don't have to do this cross thing. Um, you know, Peter's that kind of guy. Moses is that kind of guy. You know, God has this conversation, you know, go free my people. He's like, I don't think so. Uh, in that chapter, too, we'll get to there, but Aaron, you know, is called to help, but Aaron doesn't question him, and Aaron's the first guy that leads the people astray. Um, people that follow too quickly 
are like the seed that falls on that soil. It sprouts up, but it has no root. Imperfect people and people that question. Look, look at what... Fear not, Abram. Verse 1. Fear not. That includes... That, that means what? Abram's probably afraid. Like whenever God has fear not, it's because there's fear involved. You only need that when you're in a state of fear. Well, what's, what's Abram afraid of? Well, immediate context, it could be that, you know, Abram's just had to go and rescue his nephew Lot from five kings, and he had to chase them all the way up, you know, north and, and fight this battle and all this other stuff went on. So Abram's like, I'm a small, we got a small tribe, a small group of people, yeah, we won this one, but what's coming next? He's living in a hostile environment. You told me you were going to give me this land, but here I am, I'm having to fight for my own family. You promised me to be a nation, but the best I can do is, is hired help. Abraham repeats his question. Look at this. But Abram said, verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Verse 3, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So it's like, didn't he just say that twice? Yes, he said it twice. So this is what's on Abram's mind. He repeats the question, and the answer is, I'm going to have to hand all of this over to my heir. Now, this might actually be Abram's first attempt at answering the question or providing, making sure that, you know, God's promise doesn't go south. So he's like, okay, you promised me a great nation, so I better make sure that I have somebody signed up that will take over for me. So I got this Eliezer Damascus. He probably had to go through a, a legal adoption process so that Eliezer was actually the heir of Abram's stuff. And, and I think this might be Abram's first attempt to deal with the problem. And God said, nope, that's not it. Uh, a descendant from your own body, from your own innards, is going to be your heir. So he says, okay. <laughs> he believes God on that. And then we get chapter 16, where it's kind of like phase two of answering the problem. Sarah can't have a son, so we get Hagar in the mix. And now we often say, well, this is, this, they, they were disobedient. Well, you know, God doesn't include Sarah in the equation until chapter 17, after Hagar gets pregnant and Ishmael is born. So what happens is, is that in chapter 15, you have um, Abram taking care of the situation on a legal basis, a very common way to deal with things. If you have no heir, then somebody, a servant that was born in your household can legally be adopted as your heir. You can hand over the estate to him. Second, ancient Near Eastern practice, perfectly acceptable in the culture. If your wife can't have a child, then a slave in your household can be a surrogate mother. That was completely culturally acceptable. Here you have two culturally acceptable ways for Abraham to take charge and take care of the problem. And both times God says, your cultural norms are not what I'm going to use. So the adoption process isn't. The surrogate mother thing isn't. We're going to do this in a way that proves that I 
am in charge of this. Because Sarai and Abram are about in their 80s now. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. He's, what, 99 when, when, uh, when Isaac's born. So things don't tend to work that long that far into human biology, do they? You know, postmenopausal Sarah, pretty much impotent Abram, and God says, this is going to happen. I am going to make it happen. This is going to be my work, not yours. And so both culturally acceptable ways for them to deal with us at the time, God is rewriting the cultural narrative. God's response comes to Abram in a very prophetic language. It's only, this, this phrase only happens this one time in the whole Pentateuch, but it happens lots and lots in the prophets. And the word of the Lord came to him. Now later on, we find Abram is identified as a prophet, but this is prophetic, formulaic language for the narrator to use. The word of the Lord came to him. And Abram responded, even though he still has a lot of questions and he still has a lot to learn about God and his ways. Abram responded in faith and trust, verse 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And Paul unpacks this a lot in Romans chapter 4 for us. But even though the narrator says that, you know, there's a deep trust in Yahweh at this point, it doesn't mean that Abram still doesn't have questions because the next thing out of his mouth is, how can I know I'm going to possess the land? How will I know? How will I know? And there's still questions. There's still searching, even though there is deep faith and trust. You know, questioning faith is growing faith. So don't fear questions. Questioning faith is growing faith. Certain faith is stagnant faith. So, God chooses to work through unlikely people in the family of Abram. God promises a new people through Abram to bless the entire world. All nations, all families of the nations will be blessed through you. And God uses imperfect people who will continue, who need to work on this over and over and over again. So what do we do with this? I'm going to look at our three areas of application, the head, the heart, and the hands. First of all, in the, in the head, as, as we're thinking about these things and as we're mulling over the realities of God's call on Abraham, God's question, or, or Abraham's questions, and sometimes his misfires on following how will you address the areas in your life where you are doubting God or working 
to earn your salvation instead of trusting Jesus. We can have all sorts of questions in life as different things hit us. A few questions I thought of were, you know, do I really belong? In John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, Jesus said, In my Father's house there's many rooms, and if it weren't so, I would have told you. But I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be with me always. Jesus promises a home for his people. Do I, do I really have a purpose or, you know, am I just here to show up and, you know, throw money in the plate sometimes and sing songs and go away? Do I really have a purpose in, as part of the church? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7 says that God has given us all of his Holy Spirit and he has gifted every member for the ser- to serve one another and to build one another up. There, there's no spectator sport part of church. Unfortunately, we build it like that. With rows and we don't work together much. At least on Sunday mornings. Work that happens outside of this and that's great. But every person that comes to Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7, look it up, read it, is gifted to serve the kingdom purposes God has for his people. Every single person. So you belong and you have a purpose. I think there might be some that, that either might, might be watching this or, or are here today that, that seriously ask the question, can I even be forgiven? Like you don't know my story. You know what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 is that even in our when we were as far away from God as possible, when we were dead in our sins and transgressions, God sent his son to pay the price for our sins so that we may be adopted as his children. And it is by faith, again, like Abram, who had faith in the word of God, and that was credited to him as righteousness, It's not by works so that no one can boast. It is only by the grace of God and his work that we can be set free from the sin that holds us back. Can you trust God to provide when he calls you into maybe a crazy venture? Matthew chapter 7. Why do you look at, you know, why do you worry about your body, your clothes, what you'll wear, your food, what you'll eat? You know, look at the birds, uh, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Uh, and are you not more valuable than they? And, and look at the grass of the field and the flowers of the field, which is here today, tomorrow is thrown into the fire. And not even Solomon in all his splendor is as, is as radiant as this. And you are way more valuable than a field of flowers. So don't worry about that. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Today has enough trouble of its own. Seek first his kingdom. And I trust God to provide. You have your own questions. 
your own doubts. Maybe ways that you're trying to prove to God that you are worth something, but God's already answered that question. I've loved you before the foundation of the world, and I have loved you even in the most wicked brokenness that you have ever lived through. I have loved you, and I have died for you, and I have called you my own. That leads us to the heart. When you doubt God's character and faithfulness to you, how can you remind yourself of God's trustworthiness and eternal commitment to you? John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. God's purpose includes you. Acts chapter 17, 26 and 27, Paul is speaking in Athens and Greece and he says, for, for from one man God made all of humanity and he established the times and places for them to live so that they may reach out to him and find him because he's not that far from any one of us. And God is present for you. You're living here, you're living now in this time by God's design. Ephesians 3, 14 to 19, God's amazing love is completely unfathomable. Paul's praying, I, I, I would hope that you would be able to grasp how high, wide, deep, long is the love of Christ and to know this love that is unknowable. Unfathomable love. And Romans 8, 37 to 39, for I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor angels, demons, nor anything created in, in anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God's love for you is unassailable. It is amazing, it is unfathomable. God is present for you and his purpose includes you. What do we do with this? Our hands. Who in your life needs to hear about the promised Savior, Jesus Christ, and how will you encourage them to have faith in him? And my first thought on this was, sometimes that person's me. Sometimes I need to remember this first. Because we all have questions, we all have doubts, and like Abram, even when we believe God, and we receive his righteousness, we still live some pretty messy lives, don't we? And we all need to be reminded of what God has done and allow, and allow his way to change how we think, and we need to hear the promise of our Savior, even as we're called to share it with others, because an authentic witness is one who has experienced the reality of God's love and salvation in Jesus Christ, not just read about it in the book. Because you can have the theology of salvation down cold, no problem, be able to defend any doctrine at all, but unless you have met Jesus Christ and experienced his love and his power and his grace, it's just a theory. To be an authentic witness, you have to experience the reality of Jesus. 
Uh, the staff and I were reading a book by uh, A.W. Tozer right now called The Pursuit of God in one chapter. He's like, we are so good at this because one, we want the instant button that says, okay, I've got this truth, eh, easy button. I know that Jesus is real. I know that salvation is mine. You know, and we want to, but have we experienced it or do we just know the information? There's a big difference. And an authentic witness that will change the world around us will come out of people that just love Jesus because they know they're loved by Jesus. And they don't need to argue anything. They can just share what Jesus has done for them and the relationship they have with him. And that's really what you need. So who in your life needs to hear about the promised Savior, Jesus? How will you encourage them to have faith in him? Sometimes, first of all, that's your own heart and life because an authentic witness needs to experience it. The authentic witness in court has to have seen the event, been involved in it somehow, not just read about it in the paper. Sometimes that's what we do. We read about God in the paper and think that we can witness to him, but we need to experience him. In Abram's case, the end of chapter 15 and verse 17, the very, kind of what will tie this up with, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. I think I unpacked this the other week Kind of as an aside, but here is a situation. God instructed Abram to prepare for a covenant ceremony, and, and in, in that, he, he had to sever these animals in half and put them, it would be like one half here, one half here, down this aisle. So Abram had to chop a bunch of animals in half and set them on either side of the aisle. And then the expectation was, is that the two covenant partners, in this case, Abram and God, would pass between the pieces as they made this covenant deal to live in relationship together. And, and the imagery that that uh, communicated was, if I break the covenant, may I be as these animals? Severed, cut in two, dead, no chance of living again. So if I break the covenant, that's a deal. But Abram is asleep on the ground. He does not pass between the pieces. Only God's presence does. And what that means is that God said, I will see this covenant through completely. It's on my head. Only. Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's all on The only way this covenant relationship with God is going to work is because God takes the initiative, provides the sacrifice, passes between the pieces, and in this case, Jesus is the pieces severed. Jesus said it is finished from the cross. The temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. The blessing of all nations through the seed of Abraham the seed of Eve has crushed the serpent's head. It's over. The victory is won in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God through faith. And this is what communion is all about. Faith, trusting in the word and the work of God, resting on his promise and provision when it doesn't make sense and when you still have questions and when it seems impossible, you still say, okay, God, I trust you. Because it doesn't make sense that we just say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying in my place for my sin. Thank you that you forgive me in and through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and that in that I can have a relationship with you. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. And I come to you humbly and thank you for adopting me as your son. It doesn't make sense that a whole life of sin can be wiped out in a prayer. But this is what Jesus provides for us. Let's take our communion elements. Jesus said, first of all, he took the bread. Thank you. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is now the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you have provided for an unlikely people a way to walk in relationship with you. Thank you that you have provided for us in Jesus Christ the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you that we can come before you in this moment and know that we are forgiven in you. Lord, may we go into our week trusting in your goodness and your grace and your mercy to us. That we can be a blessing to everyone we meet because we have met with you and that you have called us to yourself a people to bring a blessing to those around us. As true descendants of Abram, as Paul says in Galatians, 
May we be a blessing as we go about our days. In Jesus' name, amen. As you're heading out, Ephesians chapter 4, let's stand together. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.